Let's have a word of prayer before we get into our study this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for uh, the many blessings you've given to us this week. We have homes and we have uh, food. We have uh, family and friends. And we have Jesus. We have the angels you send to to, uh, protect us and to help guide us in our walk. And we have the Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for all these gifts. We pray this morning as we come together that you will give us of that Holy Spirit in, in, in measure, uh, that we may have understanding. We talk about uh, end time scenarios. We talk about uh, prophecy in uh, Daniel and Revelation. We pray for discernment and understanding and wisdom. Uh, Lord, we see signs around us and we wish to be prepared and prepare others as well for Christ's soon coming. We pray that you will forgive us for our sins which are many, Lord. We claim the blood of Jesus shed there at Calvary. And uh, Lord, we pray for those who couldn't be here. We want to lift up those who are sick and ill. We pray for Susan and Susan's mother, Roland, his mother as well. Uh, We pray for our families, especially our children. Our children are being distracted in, in good measure, as with many people today. We pray that you will be very near to them and draw them back to thee. Please give me the words to speak this morning. I humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this particular message, uh, Jesus in the Last Generation. Our previous meetings uh, have explored Bible prophecy uh, with some doctrinal uh, uh, themes. And soon we're going to answer what the mark of the beast is directly. Uh, But right now I want to explore why God allows it to happen. Why does He seal Uh, seal his people and who are they who are these people the mark of the beast if if you wanted to put it in uh, uh, a a foundational kind of a term i guess or definition you would say that the mark of the beast is actually the mark of antichrist would you agree with that it's the mark of antichrist and it will go against the conscience of those who love and those who serve God. It'll go against their conscience. We aren't quite there yet, but I believe it's coming very, very soon. If we listen to the Spirit of God and and God is going to lead us into seeing the signs of the times, we know that time is getting shorter and shorter. Um, And we know it's very soon, but in this study we're going to do three things primarily. First, we're going to identify the 144,000 that's spoken of in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. Uh, The second thing, we're going to share uh, our understanding of the number 666. Some interesting things about that. And the third thing, we're going to take a hard look at the implications of, well, essentially what we've been learning. Um, And so, you know, Jesus and the 144,000. I talked about conscience. Um, that's probably a good place to start. Uh, uh, let's look at Revelation chapter 14, the very first five verses. And let's consider, as we read this, let's consider um, the idea of conscience. Okay, Conscience, the dictionary says, means the awareness of a moral or ethical aspect to one's conduct. It comes originally from a Latin uh, word meaning to be conscious of. 
essentially is what that word means. And we're talking about knowing the difference between right and wrong and acting in concert with that knowing, with knowing that difference. That is, if one is concerned about doing what is right, they're going to act in harmony with what he understands to be right. If one doesn't care, his inclination will be to do whatever he wants, right? Whatever he thinks is right for him is what he's going to do. And this is the thinking, essentially, of what they call modern relativism. And we see it all around us today. In fact, you see you know, what's going on in, in, in these rights that you find in like Ferguson, Missouri, or you find over in the University of Missouri now. This is based on this idea of modern relativism. What I think is the truth is what the truth is to me. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean that is the truth. It's relative, see, just to me. It's very subjective. But uh, let's not miss this. It is subjective for the very reason that its basis for making decisions is that it strips away definitive moral boundaries. The only law there is is the law that I think is a law. You see what I'm saying? It opens the door <coughs> to what, uh, getting whatever we want. It's a mask for the, in essence, the pure indulgence of selfishness is what it is. And perhaps a person wants to do what is wrong but is afraid of being caught, see? We don't know a person's heart, do we? But God does. But let's say, you know, I want to do what's wrong, but the odds of getting caught are too high. So, even though I may want to do wrong, I may be all smiles and sweetness on the outside, but that's just on the outside, isn't it? All I need is an opportunity. If I'm not going to get caught, well, because my inclination is I wanted to do wrong to begin with, then I'm going to do wrong. On the inside, there may not, uh, I may not have good ethical thoughts, but on the outside, um, well, just use me for an example. I'm a minister of God. You see what I'm saying? Think about it this way. While you are around the house, and this is for people who have dogs or cats, while you're around the house, your dog or cat may be very obedient to you. It may stay off the, the kitchen counters or off you know, your furniture. But when you're not present, does your pet still obey? You can't make, I mean even that example, you can't make ethical arguments with your dog or cat, can you? I mean, they might understand that something pleases or displeases you, but you're not going to get them to understand why it's right or wrong. They just know, ooh, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> I don't want that pain again, you know. A dog or a cat is made in the image of a dog or a cat. They have consciousness, but they don't reason morally. And I remember one time a few weeks ago, Deb and I were in a conversation like this with Jerome about animals. They do have consciousness, but they can't decide between what's right and what's wrong. They have instinct. See? 
The Bible tells us that man alone is made in the image of who? God. See, Genesis chapter 1. Only the highest orders of being, you know, people and angels and, and God, uh, so far as we know, are both self-aware and capable of choosing to act in harmony with uh, moral measures, with law, if there is law. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds. God speaks to us. And what do we do? We react, not out of instinct. Sometimes we react out of habit. You know, that's why it's good to cultivate right habits. But we decide to do right or wrong based on what God has spoken to us. Uh, but our heart is always somewhere, isn't it? Where are the hearts of God's followers in the end time? Well, we're at Revelation 14. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. This is the description of these people. It says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. You get into the original there in the Greek. And essentially what's, what's saying there, it, it actually says, in his father's and his son's name is written in their minds. It's talking about character. In verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So this is a description of essentially an ethical people. Would you agree with that? A moral people. Um, and consider again the description of them. Their father's name and the name of Jesus is written in their foreheads. That means in their mind. Their character is based after the father and the son. Um, they sing a new song, it says, uh, which is unique to their condition of purity. They've been renewed. They are redeemed from the earth, that, that said to us. Which means they, they had sinned, but they have been saved. Essentially, it's telling us that God has changed them. There's a uniqueness about them. They are followers of Jesus. Completely on His side. Completely mobilized to be with Jesus in everything. They follow Him, it says, wherever He goes. Where did He go? What did he do? Where is he going? Well, he descended from heaven to save miserable, hard-to-love people, naturally inclined after the fall to do evil or to choose to sin. What did it cost him? What, what did he do in order to bring these people from sin to his side? From evil to purity. It was a high cost. Wouldn't you agree with that? 
Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul gets on this theme. Philippians 2 verse 5. And, And often in Paul's writings, he talks about this theme of the character of Jesus, a renewal by God. In Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you. Now, why would Paul say something like that? Well, evidently, in Paul's mind, Paul's understanding, we have something wrong with our mind. (laughs) Right? And so he's saying, you need a different mind. You're not thinking right. Would you get that from what he's saying? And he says, let this mind be in you. Not the one you have, but let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains why. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. We'll get to that in a minute made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Now that's kind of interesting. Because we as human beings, when we talk about man here, when he says man, he's talking about humanity. Male, female. So it's interesting, he says, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Paul is saying, naturally, after the fall, man doesn't humble himself. (laughs) But Jesus, he was fashioned as a man, but what did he do? He humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even, not just dying, you know, dying at home, in your bed, surrounded by family. Is that how Jesus died? No. Even the death of the cross, which at that time was the worst possible way to be killed. It was the most agonizing death that had been invented. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus some knees will bow. That's not what Paul said. Every knee will bow of things in heaven, all heaven's going to bow, (laughs) and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it says here, Paul says, he took the form of a servant. Literally, what he's saying is, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now the Bible translators were too scandalized by the thought that God would empty himself. That to them seemed like virtually because you, you got to understand there's this Greek thinking that there's God and then there's humans. And the idea of God becoming human was so outlandish they couldn't wrap their, their minds around it. See? And so when they come across this and they see what Paul's saying that in, in the Greek there and they're like, I don't know if it emptied himself. So they rendered it, made himself of no reputation. So although he was, is God, 
This was their thinking, see. They said, he laid aside his divinity and he came to live here in the guise of a mere man. But he's still God, see. They couldn't comprehend it. But he was more than God in the costume of humanity. He literally and fully took on the humanity of fallen man. And that's what Paul was saying. And even though he did that, he humbled himself. And like I said, that tells us man, and we know it because we're human beings, we don't naturally humble ourselves. But he took on the humanity of fallen man. Why? Why would he do that? Why was it necessary? Why would Jesus give up all heaven and become a man? Not just be God squished into a human body, but fully man in all aspects. Well, friends, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what the Bible tells us. In 1 John 3 and verse 8, it says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Not just the outward works of the devil, which would be good, but the inward works of the devil. So not only did He become man fully, He humbled Himself, and that was a rebuke to man. I came in a body like yours and I'm humbling myself. And not only was it a rebuke, but it was an example, wasn't it? And so to accomplish this, he came without his divine, let's call them accessories, for lack of a better word. Um, he came into this world and to the very limitations that we have. Look with me for a moment at Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Let's look at this text, Romans 8, 3, and 4. Because you'll notice, if you get into Paul's writings, now he's, he sent letters to the churches, of course, to deal with uh, uh, things that were directly happening in the church. But a lot of his writings had to do with this idea of what Christ has done for us and who Christ really was. And he says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh... And that word used there is the Greek word sarks. It means the, the carnal nature. It means the human nature. So he's saying that what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful sarks, human nature, in the likeness of sinful human nature. That's what he said. And for sin, condemned sin in that human nature. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after that human nature, but after the Spirit. So Paul, remember he said, let this mind be in you, which is, he's implying you need a different mind because your mind is after Sark's. It's after the human nature. It's the one in control. But you need the mind of Christ because God is in control in his mind. And that's what we need. We need to have a mind like that of Christ. 
And this is what Paul's saying. Because of man's fallen nature, the law could only condemn us. See? It was weak through the flesh. You know, the law, and, and what, what do we find today, and what have we found through most of Christendom since the, uh, uh, we, we've gotten that new, remember we talked in, in the prophecy there was a change between that pagan form of religions into what became a new religion, a new Christian religion, which was amalgamation between pagan and Christianity, which we find in uh, papal religion. Says it tells us that it blames the law of God, doesn't it? So it has to do something with the law of God. It's the law of God that's the problem. Where did that argument originate? It originated in heaven with Lucifer, didn't it? God, you're in error. That law is what the problem is. It hinders us, right? And so, what do they teach us? Well, the law was done away with by Jesus. See. They blame the law. But, but that's not what Paul's saying here, is it? He's not saying that. The law can't be blamed or despised. It's not the one that is to accomplish the change in us. Our failure to render perfect obedience must be blamed upon ourselves. Not the law of God. How can we obey the law then? Through the grace of Christ. And this is what Paul's trying to explain to us. We need a different mind. God sent Jesus, not in the unlikeness, but in the very likeness of sinful flesh. You've got a lot of Christianity that says, now although Jesus became human, he was different than us. He wasn't really, when the Bible says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's not really what it means. That's what people are telling you. That's what these teachers of you know, the Bible are teaching people. In some way, he was different. He was in the form of Adam before Adam fell. Haven't you heard that before? Whenever somebody tells you it's impossible for you to overcome sin. They're talking from the devil's talking points. Not the Bible. Well, how could Jesus keep the law? Well, because he was different than us. No, the Bible says he came in likeness of me. <laughs> this is what Paul says over and over and over. It says... <clears throat> He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. You see, he had to do that in order to solve the sin problem. How is God going to solve this sin problem? He's got to show humanity that there's a way to destroy sin in your life. And that's what he showed us, isn't it? The Bible says Romans 8.3 he condemned sin in the flesh. When something's condemned, it's put to death, isn't it? He condemned it. It was the only way to destroy sin and save fallen humanity from destruction. It was the only way. The only way to do what? To make a way of escape for His people from the prison house 
and condemnation of sin. It was the only way it could be done. You think if there was another way of done, God would have probably done it, wouldn't He? As He went before them in the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night back in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, so He came to the wilderness of our sin-ravaged world and entered our race. He became a human being. He walked in the pathway that we abuse. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, the Bible says. And I take the Bible as it reads. This carnal nature pulled on Him just as it pulls on us. Don't let anybody tell you any different. But He never answered the pull. And that's the key. He resisted. Not by His own divine power though. Because they'll say, well, He was different than us and He could resist because he was God after all. Right, Bill? No, he set that aside before he came. But he resisted in the same power that's available to each one of us. He resisted by the power sent to him from the Father. And that power is available to every one of us. That gives us hope, friends. It should give us hope. And that's why Romans 8.3 alone doesn't complete the thought. It's followed by Romans 8 verse 4, which says that he he did uh, this so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after what? The Spirit. He came, took our nature, lived in the furnace of our nature, overcame by the Father's strength, died on the cross, walked out of the grave, rose to heaven, and now He ministers in our behalf. He's working right now, cleansing the sanctuary of sin. What does that mean? Cleansing the... Does he have a mop bucket up there and he's in there spitting polish in the sanctuary? What does that mean? It means that He's walking with each of us and He's giving us strength to overcome our tendencies to overcome our sins. And as we quit sinning, the sins quit going into the sanctuary and defiling it. Does that make sense? He is then able, one day, to stop the cleansing process as it will not be needed any longer. Why? Why will it not be needed any longer? Have you ever thought this through? Because... Jesus became as human as we are so that we could become as obedient as He is. He condemned, Paul said, sin in our flesh so that we could live righteously now in this present world, in our flesh, condemning it as Jesus condemned it. Then sin has ended in us and no longer is the sanctuary defiled. It is cleansed. And that's been the goal. That's been the goal. Paul said to Titus, Titus 2 verse 12, he said, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I've got some people I hear them say all the time, no, when Jesus returns, he's going to change us in the twinkling of the eye. He'll change your character. He'll change everything. There's nothing you can do right now except, you know, just tell people about Jesus. 
Really? Is that what the Bible... Did we need 66 books of the Bible to tell us that? Really? <laughs> Are we that dumb? We, we, we need 66 books of the Bible to tell us that simple thing? Just occupy until Jesus comes back and then he'll take care of it. I mean, you only need, what, a couple sentences for that. Jesus crushed the serpent, just as prophesied there in Genesis 3.15, bruising his heel so that we might crush the serpent under our feet and bring glory to the name that is above all names. Romans 16, verse 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, Paul said. There's a process then, isn't there? Jesus emptied himself and went to the cross to die in our place. The Bible says that he became sin for us, and that's just remarkable. Because Paul says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then the Bible, I mean, it always hastens to tell us that though Jesus did this, he never sinned. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says that he knew no sin. Hebrews 7.26 says that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Hebrews 4.15 said that he was in all points tipped like as we are, yet what? Without sin. And don't forget, well, what is sin? Transgression of the law. Transgression of the law, 1 John 3.4. Whether inwardly or outwardly, it's transgression of the law of God. To sin is to disobey. Jesus never disobeyed. He always obeyed. Although he emptied himself, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and then condemning sin in the flesh. He always obeyed. And all this so that sin might be condemned in our flesh, friends. Jesus lived in the presence of pure evil. And he endured the assaults of all wickedness. Everything Satan could throw at him. Do you think Satan held anything back? No, sir. Satan thought he had victory in his grasp when Jesus became a human being. Why would Satan think that if Jesus came as a human being but was still God? He would know he didn't have a chance. No, but Jesus became a human being and Satan thought he had a chance. You see? And Jesus voluntarily suffered the tasting of the second death in our behalf. When he was hanging on that cross and he saw the grave, he believed he would never see the Father again. Ever. For all eternity. And he was willing to die that death so that we may have eternal life. That should be our theme every single day when we open our eyes. What Jesus has done for us. The depth of His sacrifice, I don't think we will ever know. But we do know that becoming as human as we are, He voluntarily and eternally limited Himself by entering His creation alongside us. His creatures. The Creator stepped into creation 
in order to redeem it. That's an incredible thought. And like I said earlier, so much so a lot of translators, sometimes they they just couldn't comprehend that. Based primarily on the, the beliefs at that time, you know. But the risk and reward was expensive. It was beyond measure. Did God take a risk when Jesus became human? Absolutely he did. That's not to say God doesn't know the end from the beginning, is it? But God's universe, God's creation is based on the freedom of will. That's the only reason. I mean, that's what what, what, what love is. What true love, part of aspect of true love really is. If somebody actually chooses to love you. God could have made us a bunch of robots that automatically loved him. How would that mean anything to to a God that can create anything? (laughs) By thought even, you know. But to create creatures and give them the ability to reason and to give them the freedom to choose based on that ability to reason, and then they choose to return love to you, well, that's something. That's love. Make no mistake. On finishing his mission here, the plan of redemption was not yet complete. Oh, you'll hear it from pulpits all over the place. Yeah, it ended at the cross. No. That's just part of the process of his ministry. The benefits of his atonement must be transmitted to his people, you see. He went back to heaven to serve as our great high priest, to apply divine power to our need as we cooperate with him in our daily walk. He ministers for us now in the sanctuary in heaven, cleansing us and thus the sanctuary as well. As he cleanses us, essentially he's cleansing the sanctuary, isn't he? He's finishing the atonement is what he's doing. He's repairing us. He's creating his 144,000. That's what he's doing. And when he stands upon Mount Zion with his people who look back to everything that's happened, to all his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross, and what's he going to say? Isaiah tells us, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied, Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, 11. He'll see what it all meant and what was achieved. The universe will be new again. Sin will never be repeated. It will die. It will be destroyed for all eternity, never to rise up again. Which brings us, friends, to us. Jesus came here. He lived without sinning in our flesh and died on the cross to buy back. When you hear somebody say to redeem, that's what it means. He purchased us back. He purchased back the race, the human race. He went back to heaven to prepare a place for us. And He's going to return again to take us unto Himself so that wherever He is, we're going to be. John 14 tells us that. But we have a part in the process. Do you believe that? No, we earn ourselves no credit or merit toward our own salvation. It is Jesus that saves. But the passage in Philippians had two more verses that we didn't read. Let's go back there. And let's catch them now in connection with 
uh, you know, the incarnation of Jesus. Philippians 2. In Philippians 2 and 5, it commanded us to have the mind of Christ, remember? Then Christ is portrayed in His descent to help us, laying aside His divine power. This is what Paul's telling us. He dies on the cross, never having taken it up in in 33 years, never, never having tapped into it to even do one miracle. He never tapped into that power. All His miracles were done through the Father's power. Christianism today is permeated with the idea that we have nothing to do in the salvation process. All you have to do is say the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. Don't you hear that from the pulpits? They misunderstand the words of Christ. They say that if we did anything, somehow that would mean what we were earning a fragment of our salvation. But I'm more concerned with hearing the word of God. What about you? Jesus emptied Himself. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.7. He emptied Himself. And then come the following verses. 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What? How dare Paul use that four-letter word, Work. (laughs) Funny. Yeah, especially on the Sabbath. Well, I don't know that Paul was using it on the Sabbath, but I'm reading it on the Sabbath. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. You got to remember, he said, let this mind be in you. Whose mind? Mind of Christ, right? And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and prayer. He speaks to all of God's people. For he says, you and your own salvation. And in the Greek, these are plurals. He means you believers. That's what he's saying. He's saying you believers, more than you individuals, per se. Although it is it starts with the individual, doesn't it? Heaven is preparing a group of people, friends. A group who have worked out their own salvation. Not having been saved on their own, but who have worked out their salvation with God. For the text says that the working out of their own salvation is actually God working in them to will and do of His good pleasure. See? Bluntly put, If we don't do our work in choosing to submit to God, He can't do His work of helping us submit. If we don't let Him repair us, He doesn't. He respects our choices, no matter what those choices are. He gave us a conscience, not to be overruled or gone around, but to be ourselves. We get to choose. We can't do what Flip Wilson said years ago. The devil made me do it. That excuse doesn't work. God graciously provides the power. He lovingly sends even the grace that enables us to respond to Him. But the choice remains with us. 
So where do God's people go? Well, they go to the mind of Christ. Whereas he emptied himself of of divinity, they emptied themselves of humanity fallen. You see that? He becomes sin for us. We are made the righteousness of God in him. It's all God's plan, not ours. It is the outworking of the true gospel is what the good news is, see? It is the extinguishing of sin from the universe. It's the end of the groaning of all creation. Remember I read last week, it said, uh, how God said the earth was puking them out. It's groaning because of sin. It is the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Paul says there in Romans 8. It is the culmination of the journey of the universe. It is heaven's omega to Satan's alpha, you could say. Lucifer began the fight, lived out the mystery of sin to its bitter fullness, and God ends the fight, working out the mystery of righteousness in His people. And the Bible tells us that God's righteousness is revealed in His people. He doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, yeah, they're righteous. You've got to remember, this is a court case. Who's on trial? Who ultimately is on trial in this case? Do you know? Well, ultimately, it's God. It's God, right? At the end of the battle, Jesus is going to stand on Mount Zion with his 144,000. They have Christ in them, the hope of glory, the Bible says. At that point, fully realized. We're not quite there yet, are we? But along the way, they also lived out this hope and knew the inward working of God day by day. They lived in this world without being in this world, so to speak. They lived in connection with Jesus. And that connection became stronger all the time until it was total connection with Christ. So where are they going? They're not stopping here, are they? Earth is but a way mark on the journey, but they're going to heaven. And Paul says, 1 Thessalonians, we are going to ever be with the Lord. So what will we do until then? Well, we'll, re- we'll repent. We'll battle thoroughly with self and plead thoroughly with God to change us. We'll hold still while He does the surgery, so to speak. We talked about surgery earlier, didn't we? We'll descend from what uh, appear to be more luxurious destinies to bend down to the lowly and the needy. We'll know where we are going. Our eternal destiny is what's going to be on our mind. Not the pleasures of sin for a season. We'll forge our destiny by a constant communion with the Holy Spirit. We'll hand over to God our corrupted value system and embrace His value system that we find in His Word. We're going to change our habits. This is all that we'll be doing here before Christ comes. We're going to become agents of His truth, representatives of His kingdom, ambassadors. We're going to be the standard bearers in the midst of this apostasy. And in doing all that, we become targets in this war. 
in this cosmic conflict, this great controversy. Do you think you have a target on your back? <coughs> you claim to be a Christian and follower of Christ. You do have a target on your back from Satan. And that's going to be okay. Don't you think that's okay? What do we read in Psalms to begin our worship today? God is our shield and buckler. And that's going to be our choice though the heavens fall. God's character will be vindicated through us. Did you ever consider, like I said earlier, God ultimately is the one that's on trial. You see, the final demonstration of what the gospel can do in and for humanity is still in the future. The 144,000 will make that demonstration, though, in the power of God. Jesus forged the path and showed us how, and then He empowers us to live for Him now. He was our example. Our mission is simply to show that what God did in Christ, He can do in us. And this is the demonstration that the world has been waiting for. Do you believe that? And when it's accomplished, you know what's going to happen? The end's going to come. Jesus is going to return. The last generation of people living on the earth will have among them those in whom God has successfully made this demonstration. Satan says that no one can keep God's law. Isn't that what he said? He said it was unfair. He attacked God's law, God's government, and since God himself. God says, yes, they can. But it will not be through two or three unusual people, super saints, you know, sprinkled through the ages of the Bible that he makes this demonstration. Satan could say, oh, those are the exceptions. You know, of course you're going to have one weirdo every once in a while. That's a fluke, right? God will in the last generation demonstrate in mass what his gospel does in the lives of those who let him remove sin. All heaven, friends, is watching for this demonstration. And they haven't seen it yet. Yes. You think about this, and a life here and a life there, they've seen the hints of it. But something very different is going to happen in the last generation of the followers of Christ. That's where God has placed us on the map. You believe it? At the end of time. We have an opportunity like no other has ever had. We are down to it now. Do you believe that? We're down to it now. Which side do we choose to be on day by day? The Bible says that these are the things that angels desire to look into. That's what Peter said. These are the things that angels desire to look into. And it says that when God is judged, He will be vindicated. Paul said in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, he said, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. He's talking about God. And the Bible says that in the end, Christ stands, we read it, Revelation 14. He stands where? Victoriously on Mount Zion with his 144,000. You could look at it this way. You know, there's a lot of politics going on. You know, we've got a 
uh, run for president here and we see all these guys run for president. You could say then that each of our lives, look at it this way, as a vote. In the end, when each life is evaluated in the judgment, the analysis will show whom we voted for. Our life is a vote. Who has your end time vote? (laughs) And that's what this showdown between Christ and Satan, between the seal of God and the mark of the beast is, is all about. Who has your vote? Some of us will vote for Jesus and God's government and our lives are going to show it. Some of us will vote for Satan and his government and our lives will show it. Now, they'll be deceived in doing that. But two groups are being developed. Now, we're saved individually. But by virtue of being saved, we become a part of God's group, His family, His church, His people, right? Same is said of those who refuse to be saved by Jesus. They become a part of Satan's group, His church, His people. Remember our study about who and what the church is? Well, you guys might not remember (laughs) There's only two churches. There's the church of God, and or the, you know, I put it this way: there's the church of Christ, and there's the church of Antichrist. You're in one or the other. Which brings us to the number of the beast. Revelation thirteen. passage is found in the last verses of Revelation 13. I'm going to read verses 16 to 18. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast... For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. You know, many things have been said about this over the years, <laughs> and still are. Even I mean, more and more, there's there's so many ideas about this. Uh, I just lost count of how many ideas people come out about this. But I think we can tie it into this idea of Jesus and the hundred forty-four thousand. <coughs> See. In what I've been talking about today, we, we focus not on how many there are, whether it's a literal number or, or a figurative, uh, figurative number and, and those kinds of questions. We focused on what these people are like, see? And we found them to be striving to replicate in their own lives a likeness to Jesus. They never become Christ, you know, but they seek to become like Christ, And in this endeavor, they reach the pinnacle of what humanity can be, see? All by and through the power of God only, of course, right? There's not a particle of credit uh, uh, for them to take in the matter of salvation. That's not what we've been talking about. God repairs us by His power alone. But notice now, there's a group that is developed with Christ-like traits, They are called the 144,000. Did you notice that this group is shown right after the number of the beast is shown? 
There are no divisions of chapters in the original writings, so they flow one into another. You come right out of Revelation 13 and go right in the first five verses of 14. Now think about this. We already know that there are two groups forming up in the end of time. One group has the fathers in Jesus' name in their foreheads. The other has what? The mark of the beast in their foreheads, right? One group obeys God's law. The other group observes a counterfeit law. One group is sealed by God. The other group is unsealed or sealed by Satan, you could say. One group worships in spirit and truth on the seventh-day Sabbath. The other group is forced by the state to worship the mark of the papacy on the day of the sun. One group follows the lamb wherever he goes. The other group follows Satan wherever he goes. One group is, in the end, without fault before the throne of God. The other group is full of fault before the throne of God. One group's not sinning. One group is sinning. You're getting the gist, aren't you? Jesus is coming back for people who've stopped sinning. Now, if you study carefully the group mentioned in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17, they are described the same as those mentioned in Revelation 14, verses 1 to 5. The one difference is that in Revelation 14, they are shown in heaven, and in Revelation 7, they are shown having come out of the earth. Have you noticed that? In chapter 7, they go through tribulation. In chapter 14, they've gone through and stand without fault. Chapter 7 speaks of their sealing and testing. Chapter 14 speaks of the end product. They are one and the same group. But they're spoken of at different points in the conflict. One group, those having the mark are aligned with the state when it enforces the worship law and tries to overrule the consciences of Christ's followers. The other group is following Christ and goes through persecution. Thus, one group inflicts persecution and the other experiences persecution. These are two very, very, very distinct groups and there's no doubt about it. Notice this also. The difference does not say here 666, but 666. That's significant. There is a difference. Six is said by many to be the number of a man. So six tripled is the number of a man three times over. But 666 as a number would signify a group. Some grouping of an actual number of people. Now we're told in Revelation 20 verse 8 that those attacking the new Jerusalem after it descends to the earth at the very end will be a number so vast as they describe it, as it is described there, as the sand of the sea in number. All the lost who have ever lived will be resurrected to that final showdown. It's a lot of people, isn't it? But at the time of the enforcing of the mark of the beast, chapter 13 tells us that everyone will receive that mark except those following Jesus. There are two final, clear-cut, finite groups in the end. This is what the Bible says. This is what Revelation is telling us. 
Will there be exactly 144,000 who follow Jesus during this time? It does seem like this must be a literal number. Exactly 12,000 out of every tribe sounds literal, doesn't it? But I'm not sure that there will be as many as 144,000 who follow Jesus in the end of when it comes down to it. (laughs) I don't know there will be that many people on the earth following Jesus. And there are other reasons. I don't really want to get into that. I understand this number to be symbolic and representing a group of people more so than literal. A group of people who follow Jesus all the way. So what then of the number 666? Which beast does the 666 number apply to? This is an interesting question. And I've thought about it for some time, over a number of years. I think it applies to both. But more directly to the second beast at this time in the prophecy. It has to apply directly to the second beast, the image beast, which enforces the worship of the first beast for the context to make any sense. And it it may be just something subtle, but it is a little bit of a difference. It applies to the form of apostate Protestantism that will uh, will use the the church-state connection to force the passage of a law to keep the first beast's mark, the Antichrist's Sabbath. How does the 666 apply to the second beast? That second beast, remember, we studied it out is the United States, that, that, that church state combination that comes together. It's an image of the first beast, remember, which is the papacy. How does it apply to the second beast? Well, let's think about this. It's the number of a man... As God's seal counters Satan's mark, his 144,000 group counters Satan's 666 group. 144,000 have Jesus's and the Father's name in their foreheads or in, in essence their character of the Father and the Son written in their minds. The 666 have the number of a man or in their foreheads or uh, the character of Satan in essence written in their mind. The 144,000 are keeping God's Sabbath day. They have the seal of God, while Satan's 666 group are keeping a false day. And they are not sealed by God, but they're sealed by Satan. They're puppets to Satan's whims, in essence. Their minds have all their doors open, all the senses open, and Satan has full control of them. See, because when probation closes, that's what it is, isn't it? Everything's been decided. But they still have this battle. 666 is the number of a man. And while we can't apply this to the office of the Pope, you can. Let's also consider the timing in the context of the prophecy. Remember, if these verses come in a a description of the second beast in parallel to the description of the first beast then they can also apply to the second beast, but in a different time frame. Much like the parallel I told you about the 144,000 in Revelation 7, it's the same group in 7 and 14, but at different times. See what I'm saying? When we work backwards from Revelation 13 and verse 18, we find that the reference coming, the reference coming just before that to the beast in verse 17 is the beast 
that we find in verse 15, because we're working backwards. Who is this talking about? That beast is the Catholic copy. Apostate Protestantism. Exercising all the power of the first beast before him, it told us. A church-state entity that is persecuting, trying to enforce a violation of a conscience. The first beast was already described and fully identified in Revelation 13 verses 1 to 10. Therefore, why do we need to come back now and identify it cryptically again? But to show its new image in the form of the second beast, the image beast. It's a subtle difference, but it's important. God put it there for a reason. To show that this second beast does in fact make an image to the first beast. It's the character's the same. I want you to notice this. I came across this. This interesting statement. It's found in the book A Word to the Little Flock. And just think about this. She says, I saw all that would not receive the mark of the beast and of his image in their foreheads or in their hands could not buy or sell. Revelation 13, 15 to 17. I saw that the number 666 of the image beast was made up. What? Did you catch that? The number 666 of the image beast was made up and that it was the beast that changed the Sabbath and the image beast had followed on after and kept the popes and not God's Sabbath. And all we were required to do was to give up God's Sabbath and keep the popes, and then we should have the mark of the beast and of his image. So, the 666 applies to the beast in our time. The image beast. More so than... It, it's, just, it's just a chain. It's just following the, the chain of of time. That's why it's an image to the first beast. I told Deb the other night, I said, what is an image? It's a reflection of something, isn't it? But it isn't actually the something it's reflecting, is it? But it is in all appearances, isn't it? And that's what you can see in Revelation 13. This isn't a big thing, as the outcome is all the same anyway. Consider the facts. Those having the beast's mark observe a false day and violate the true Sabbath. Those having God's seal observe the Sabbath and they don't submit to the worship law of the image beast. Those going along with the beast have developed personal characters like the beasts. Remember, you know, a name in the Bible is synonymous with character. For example, Jesus' name means what? Salvation, God with us, right? Satan's means what? Adversary. And so those that go along with Christ have developed a character like Christ. If the 666 number represents a group, then those having the number of his name are those grouped with a satanic mind and not the mind of Christ. You see the the distinct differences? This is why Paul's saying, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Because if you have the mind of Christ, you're going to be in the group especially this generation we're living in at the end of time, you're going to be in the 144,000 group. If you don't have the mind of Christ, you're going to have the mind of Satan, you're going to be in the 666 group. 
Both beasts in Revelation 13, the first and the second, are acting in harmony with each other to promote worship on their day by law to produce people who, what? They keep on sinning and rebelling against God and thus having the same character as that first beast, the papacy, and are grouped together with the beast in opposition to the Lamb and His group, 144,000. Thus, the mark of the beast is to worship on the day they say and also to violate God's Sabbath. The name of the beast is the character of the beast developed in his followers. Haven't you ever thought of why do they say the mark of the beast, the number of his name, right? Why is there these three things spoken of about the beast? Because they represent three different things. But it's all the same character. The number of his name is the final grouping of people who are developed, having grouped themselves with the satanic mind, the satanic character. And it's interesting, because in the Greek, these three elements from Revelation 13 verse 17 are connected by a word that is a, it's a correlative conjunction. That means that it connects these three ideas together. So it isn't just the mark. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it isn't just the mark of the beast that we need to, that we need to be concerned with. It's all three we need to be concerned with. Though the mark is huge. <laughs> They're all huge, really. So we want to avoid far more than a literal mark on the, the forehead or the hand. We want to avoid the inward mark meaning the whole program of the devil. We don't want his worship day mark or his filthy character or to be a part of his group of the lost. Those three things. Do we want any part of that? No. Which brings us finally to Revelation 14 and verse 5 as I close up. And in their mouth was found no guile for they are without fault before the throne of God. Jesus' people have become like him. See? So like him that the Bible can say of them that there is no guile found in their mouth. So they, by connection with Jesus, have placed themselves beyond lying, beyond telling untruth, beyond bearing false witness in any way. They have embraced Jesus, who is the way, the truth, right, and the life. Not only their mouths, but also their lives represent Jesus and the kingdom of God to everyone in the whole universe. And again, they were, like he says, they are without fault before the throne of God. There's no continuing sin that can be found in their lives. They have voted for Christ completely. They are completely and unreservedly His. And that's why you read in Revelation 22 and 11, the command comes out, He that is holy, let him be holy still. It's finished. See? They have overcome fully by the blood of the Lamb. They made their robes white by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation tells us. They were changed, repaired by Jesus, so that heaven can rest its case in this trial against the character of God and His government. Satan can't say, well, that was just a fluke of so many, you know, this person then, Enoch at one time. And it... No, God's got a whole generation of people. It wasn't a fluke, see? And so that's why they're, you know, you consider this, that's why there's a great controversy. So that Jesus can help us to come into the throne of grace and receive God's power. 
how important then, infinitely important, that we take God up on His offer and become followers of Jesus here and now. Amen? Do you believe the end is near? You see what's going over, happening over in France? <laughs> the end's nearer. Things are lining up. Today we've sought to understand the meaning of the number of the beast and of the 144,000. But more than that, we've looked again, if just for a moment, at the price Jesus paid to redeem us. And we're humbled and grateful for that undeserved love of God. And so may we go from this place purposing never to crucify Him afresh by sin ever again. And so as we pray, friends, let's ask the Lord for strength to help us in our time of need, in every time of need. May our lives, each one of us, be votes for Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for your love, your undying love. We thank you so much for sending the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us in even our thoughts. And we pray that you will show mercy upon us, continue to show mercy upon us, and help us to overcome. We thank you that you've forgiven our sins as we claim the blood of Jesus. And and we thank you for the angels that you send to help us in our walk and to protect us from the evil one. We know we have targets on our back. But we can rest assured that you are our protector. Please continue to be with us throughout this Sabbath day and the days ahead. And prepare us for what's coming and help us to prepare others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.